first chapter of Luke that uh, Luke writes as a historian. He tells you in the first few verses there that many others are, have written on this, and he's aware of those writings, and he's aware of the various eyewitnesses. And so uh, uh, after looking at accounts that others have drawn up, uh, after talking with the various eyewitnesses, uh, he's carefully investigated the matter. In verse 3, uh, he's set it out to write an orderly account in the latter part of verse 3. Uh, at this time that he writes, from all the available evidence we have, there were a number, a little short synopsis written records about Jesus and these events floating around in the early church. There were miracle stories and parable uh, stories and kingdom stories and all the, what he said about the destruction of Jerusalem and the various judgment situations, that these were all floating around. They had been put together in different ways for different purposes. But uh, the evidence is at this point nobody had actually put together an orderly count where they made an effort to put it in some kind of chronological order and had a purpose in mind for the, the entire framework, and Luke does it. It's believed by, by most scholars that uh, Luke, Matthew, and Mark all had a same document that, they, that was floating around, a document that's called the Q document, and that they made excess of. For example, most of Mark can be found in Luke, and in Matthew with commentary sometime. In other words, an elaboration on the point that you can, uh, just about everything in Mark can be found in either Luke or, or Mark, or Luke or Matthew. And so you can see a similar document. I mean, when you have things put together in the exact <laughs> same order and the words are the same and everything like that, then it's pretty obvious that, they're, that they have come in contact with the same document. Now, the reason I say that... Uh, the words being exactly the same would be evidence of a same document that each of the three have come in contact with. You've got to keep in mind that uh, our accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written in Greek. And, of course, we translate them into English. But Jesus spoke Aramaic. And that was the language primarily the disciples. And there were three languages used at this time. Although Latin was in vogue, Latin was not used by many Jews, only, uh, only as they had to to deal with the Romans. But Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek were all in use, and all evidence from the archaeological discoveries is that the majority of Jews were pretty fluent in all three languages, uh, Greek, uh, Aramaic, and, and Hebrew. And Aramaic is a language that the Jew picked up after being carried into Babylonian captivity. Going back to Daniel, when they were carried into Babylonian captivity, Aramaic is the language of the Babylonians. And so they picked it up, and it actually replaced Hebrew among the common Jew as their language, but yet their scriptures were still in Hebrew. All their scholars spoke Hebrew, and the evidence is that uh, most of the common people were very uh, you know, knowledgeable in the Hebrew also. They were so knowledgeable in Greek that the number one translation of the Old Testament that was in use at this time was the Greek Septuagint, uh, translated between 280 and 240 B.C. Okay, obviously then, if uh, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, and Mark, and Darren, and Mark, uh, Mark, we've got 
three marks where I count, that you each heard what he said, and then you're going to write it in <clears throat> Greek, you're not going to use exactly the same words when you translate from his Aramaic language into Greek. I mean, there, you're going to use synonyms, obviously, but your construction will not be exactly the same. You won't be the exact words. And by the way, that is why that when you read the Gospels, if you'll compare the statements of Jesus, you'll notice that a number of times uh, that you can look at what he said in Matthew or Mark or Luke, and although the meaning is the same, the words will be different, and the construction different, and sometimes the sequence uh, even a little bit different. And so that you, you have the meaning there, but you have the situation of Jesus speaking this in Aramaic, and, and then it being translated by somebody else in, into Greek. All right, when, when looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have a certain body of material where the words are exactly the same, the sequence is exactly the same, the syntax is the same, and so obviously they're, they're using a, a same document. Okay, Luke then has access to these various documents floating around, and an eyewitness account of the apostles, and then he has put it together in an orderly way. Uh, again, the evidence to my mind is that he's not aware of anything else being put together. I don't believe, personally, that Luke has, has read Matthew or, or Mark, uh, because the, the evidence, to my mind, as he sends this to Theopolis, is that there is no orderly account, and he is putting together one and sending it to Theopolis. Okay, the word Theopolis we identified as a, a Greek word that literally means lover of God, or God, or God lover. Um, by the fact that he said most excellent, uh, the indication is that this is somebody that with a high rank, uh, so a, a high-ranked individual that's been converted, and then he wants him to know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So, again, the indication is Theopolis has been taught this information orally, but uh, he's not aware of a lot of the written documents that Luke is, and, and obviously not having done the research and all, and so he wants him to literally know the certainty behind these things. All right, then last week we went ahead and noted that he gave some examples and showed that uh, Luke writes as a historian. Uh, we looked at, uh, let's see, in the third chapter, for example, I'll just use one tonight in the review. Uh, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, Tetrarch of Aturia. Names all the various individuals and the positions there. Obviously, this is material that can be checked out. And so when you say, once upon a time, are you speaking generalities? then people cannot check you out. Luke is writing as a historian, and he's writing and publishing this work at a time when the people are alive who were involved in these events. And by the way, that's the acid test of any historical document. And he's not scared of being checked out. And so all the way through this document, this is just one sample, he gives you names, positions, places, times, uh, he makes it easy for you if you're living at this time and you want to challenge him and, and check him out on, on this material. So he writes strictly as a historical document. Okay, now, last week we, uh, we looked at an overall view and we uh, made the, I think Mark was the one that brought up the question afterwards, 
And I was going to handle it somewhat tonight, and then I decided I'm going to do something else because I, I read something on this. It's very good, and I thought I'll just make a copy of it and, and give it to you, and we could have a better discussion tonight. <coughs> and that is the, uh, the uh, lineage in Luke, in the third chapter, where you have, uh, let's see, beginning with uh, uh, verse 23, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age when he began. He was a son. It was thought of Joseph. And then we have the lineage of Jesus taken all the way back to Adam. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 1 and on down, we have the lineage of Jesus starting with Abraham and brought forward to Christ. So Luke looks back from Jesus to Adam. Matthew uh, from Abraham down to Jesus. Well, nothing wrong with that. No problem because Matthew is writing for the Jew, and the promise of the Messiah was to Abraham, and he was come from the seed of Abraham, and that's where they, the, the Jews zeroed in on all of this starting, was with, with Abraham. So no problem there. But when we get down to David, and we lay the genealogy of Luke next to the genealogy in Matthew, from David down, we run into some real differences. And you can see that bang, 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 we've got different names. Not only do you have different names, but uh, uh, one of them gives um, 26 names. The other one gives 40. And you say, well, again, that's really no real problem because uh, in the uh, Hebrew, there is no word for grandfather or great-grandfather. It's just father. That's why you read Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And when you read in the Bible about so-and-so being the son of such-and-such, such, it does not necessarily mean that they were their direct son. They, it may be several generations there. So the fact that one has more names is still no problem because that uh, you can go back and you can compare it with the genealogies and Chronicles and Kings, and, and you'll find that, uh, that any number of times there will be several generations that are skipped. In other words, they put the most prominent names, and what they were really trying to do is show that Jesus is in a certain lineage. They're really not trying to show a direct father-son relationship all the way down. They're just trying to use these most prominent names and show that he is in the lineage because the promise had been made to uh, Abraham about the Messiah to come. Okay, so those two problems, the fact that one has more names, uh, that's no, no real problem there. Uh, one, one with a longer list. It is a problem, though, where you have, you're dealing with the same time frame, like for, and you have different names, like uh, uh, after David, Luke has Nathan, and Matthew has Solomon. And then right on down those first several generations. And so what you see is that Matthew's genealogy pursues the, the kings of Israel, and Luke doesn't. And so there is a there is a, uh, a definite difference there, and there has to be some explanation, or you've got a contradiction on that on the lineage of Christ. Okay, now what I was going to do is is get into a discussion of that tonight, and 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 but I read this article just today, and it's excellent. Uh, you know, it's from uh, I've read it on several different uh, sources. And of the ones I've read, this is very good. Uh, and so I think it would be better just to, to run, give you a copy of it 
and and then what we would cover in a half hour we can cover in about 10 minutes if everybody reads it and then we just look over it suffice it to say a, a statement we'd made last time we met is that the early church found no problem okay that's something to always keep in your mind the people that had first-hand information about this found no problem obviously there's an explanation because it's uh, i mean you don't have to be a uh, an a language genius to read that and see the discrepancies and so that uh obviously that if there was a discrepancy the early church would have had problems with this the first commentary written on the new testament new testament documents was in about 150 to 160 a.d with a harmony of the gospels and here we are in 150 160 a harmony of the gospels and that writer has no problems whatsoever with this. How does he? How did they handle it? That's a, it's called a dietitian. Yeah. Like it, did he put both those right side by side? I mean, we don't have to get into it, but I just. Have yeah, he puts it. He just, in other words, you can there's you can put it side by side, or you can just blend it either way you want. This way, you have you put it side by side. Okay. And uh, in that, uh, I'm saying the very fact that he put it that way, and nobody had any problem with it, uh, showed that obviously there was an explanation. Uh, the most common explanation that has come down through the centuries is that uh, one is given the lineage of Joseph and the other the lineage of Mary. And that Joseph is, is being shown as the, as the legal coming down through the kings and Mary otherwise, but then, see, they both go back to David. And, but then there's some real good studies and explanations involved with that. And, and different, there's some different theories from within that framework. So I thought I'd just go ahead and, um, and uh, you know, run a copy of that off because it's only about four or five pages, I guess. And then, and then we'll look at it and then whatever discussion you have, we'll look at it from that point. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do then tonight is move over to the uh, sixth chapter We've had uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, the mention of John the Baptist preparing the way, his fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. We're have, we have the fact that Jesus is rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth, uh, the temptation of Jesus and some of the miracles. And we'll go back and get, you know, some of that. But I'd like tonight to center the discussion on this because we have a, a sermon here which really is a synopsis of the teaching of Jesus. And so I thought it gives itself to a good discussion. And so we'd look at some of the principles in it and uh, uh, look at what, uh, you know, I believe really real Christianity really is. Uh, Mark, let's start with uh, you on that sixth chapter and uh, read to a comfortable spot and then we'll move on around. Okay, you want to just start at the beginning of the sixth chapter? Right, uh-huh. Okay. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the, the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taught, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there 
whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus Jesus knew what was what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spend the night praying to God. Okay, now, think uh, about the entire chapter in in its entirety. Think of it from the standpoint of the tenor uh, of the instruction itself, what he has to say. And then with that in your mind, think of Christianity as it's taught and practiced in your environment. Think of the church and the way the, the various things are taught and are emphasized and all. Is there any difference uh, is there anything that stands out in this uh, here relative to to anything we may be practicing or not practicing today? Where is his emphasis? Does he have an emphasis? Was the intent of the heart? Okay. Jack says that uh, the intent of the heart itself. Uh, uh, in fact, when he said, I'm thinking of that first part there, before you even get to the sermon, look at the sixth chapter. Uh, they condemned his disciples for doing something that was unlawful in the Sabbath day on their interpretation, right? And he tells them that, hey, David did something that was legally unlawful too, didn't he? That uh, David was hungry, and his men, and they were running from Saul in the Old Testament account, and, and he had a decision to make, do we starve or do we eat the holy bread? And he came to the conclusion that it was, it was never the intention of God that he starved to death, that that, that that took priority over the legality of that other point. And so David practiced situation ethics. He ate the holy bread. And Jesus said, uh, even though he did it, he was not wrong, even though it was unlawful. And uh, Mark and Matthew give quite a bit more information you know, on that and, 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 as to what Luke has given here. Well, then... The next incident is a healing on the Sabbath day. Again, it's, uh, by the way, it's interesting how many miracles Jesus does on the Sabbath day, even though he knew in advance how mad those guys were going to get. So what do you see in these people that uh, they, they see miracles, they hear this kind of teaching that you've just heard over here about love and mercy, etc., and yet they zero in on the fact that something legal Something legally wrong has been done on the Sabbath, at least by their interpretation. And that's all they can think about. They're, the, they're blinded to the, uh, he performs a miracle, but they're so wrapped up in the fact that he did this on the Sabbath day that they miss the fact that the guy performed a miracle. And, uh, and then all the way through here, they miss this teaching because of, of they're so concerned about the fact that he has broke a legal Point, and he seems to go out of his way to break it. 
Uh, he didn't have to perform that miracle on the Sabbath day. We know that if he's who he claimed to be, he knew the what the reaction would be. And he goes right, right back into their history and said, hey, look, David did something like this also and was not was not condemned. What do you do? You get anything out of that? What is what's happening there? As far as, is it? Are you saying as far as compared to what we're doing today? Now, what is uh, just the Pharisees? You get anything out of the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders? And there is something about them that has caused. This, here we just read a, a fantastic system of teaching dealing with how to live your life and morality and and an attitude of heart, etc. And they miss it all. They, there's been a miracle performed there. And they miss it. Because they're tied, they're so zeroed in on the fact that he is legally wrong on this one point. And so I don't care about the teaching on love or mercy or kindness or, or, or anything like that. Or, or the miracle, you know, that he is wrong on this point. You get anything out of that? That's yeah. it. That's their religion. Their religion is go by the law. Their religion is not love and mercy. Right. Their, their religion then is, uh, oh, by the way, is anything wrong with the law? You said the religion is going, okay, nothing wrong with the law. But they think of, of their relationship to God as one of legally keeping points. And that seems to, they think of their being pleasing or displeasing to God based on their being legally correct on points. All right? Remember, he said, like in Matthew, you tithe, mint, and ionize, and cumin, but you've neglected weightier matters of the law, love, and justice, and, and mercy. Uh, Luke is interesting because more than any of the other Gospels, he zeroes <coughs> in on this principle here uh, that uh, he, he brings, he has Jesus praying, uh, telling a story about um, two men praying, and you got a publican and a Pharisee. And which one is justified before God? Publican. You, you got ten lepers healed, and who turns back to give thanks? Samaritan. Samaritan. You, you've got a man that is has been beaten up and robbed, and a priest passes him by. He's got to do his religious function in Jerusalem. A Levite passes him by, going to his religious function in Jerusalem. Who stops? Who's a, who's a Samaritan? Okay, are they legally right on anything? <laughs> Here they, they're half-breeds. They've intermarried with pagans. Uh, they worship in Samaria. They are totally disrespected by the Jews. They're legally wrong on these points. Uh, the Jews don't talk to them. They just flat do not talk to them. Remember when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman and in John 4, and his disciples stood back and it just shocked them. I mean, it's bad enough he would talk to a woman publicly, but to talk to a Samaritan woman, you know, that's, that was that was something else. All right, and I'm saying that this is no accident. Uh, it can't be that Luke, over and over again, zeroes in on, on this. Well, can we get anything out of this? Don't do it, it's wrong. Don't be that way, I guess. This is one thing. Yeah. Well, it's in there for us. Jesus huh? went out of his way. I mean, he. It seemed like every opportunity he had to make these people irate, he took it. I mean, I mean, and just 
before he heals the man with a shriveled hand, he says, get up and stand in front of everybody. <laughs> you know, he, he knew what they were thinking. And so he says, okay, I got an opportunity here. And so he calls the guy up in front of everybody and then asks him, is it, is it what should you do? Get on, or you, maybe you'd already ask him that. But he heals him right there in front, in front of everybody. But and he knows what's going to happen. Made, you know, I mean, it's like it had a point. Right. There's a reason for it. I mean, well, he, he could have waited till the next day. But well, he, then yeah, he could have passed it by and missed. not made him mad. Yeah. But he took it, that opportunity. And it's like in the stories. He knew. When he tells the story about the the, the publican, the, the Pharisee and the publican, he knows. I mean, he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees when he tells it. <laughs> Here's, if you were to put it in our language, a man's been beaten up and robbed, and an elder from the Church of Christ passes him by, and a preacher from the Church of Christ passes him by, and one of the deacons passes him by, and a black drug dealer out here stops and helps him. And uh, two people go up to play, pray. Um, one is um, an apostate Baptist. <laughs> and the other is a devout member of the church. And he's up there praying. He says, Lord... I do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. You've never seen us drag an instrument into the worship. We've got the right name. That poor guy over there is calling himself a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, and he's not even faithful there. And look at him, just beating his chest, and he needs mercy. Yeah. And then you say, hey, this guy is the one that's right before God. Now, you're not saying that that publican is right in his whatever sins he's involved in as a publican, right? I mean, after all, he's beating his chest and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus is not saying that the Jews ought to sell themselves out to Rome and be a publican. He's not saying that the Samaritans are right on those particular points. But what is he saying? The Jews are wrong on that one point. They need to, the point of what? They, they need to have their, their attitude fixed. Okay. The pride is there. Right. Um, Thinking the, that they're saved. Right. All of their legal have. rightness was not going to compensate for a wrong attitude or an unloving heart or an unkind dispensation. That the, uh, the fact that I may go to church on Sunday, take the Lord's Supper and do things legally right, is not going to compensate for unkindness or, or selfishness uh, in my everyday life or a bad attitude towards other people or self-righteousness or anything like that. It won't compensate for that, that. That, in fact, given a choice here, whose situation are you better off in, the person who, through ignorance, is legally wrong on some point, but whose heart is right, or the person who is legally right but his heart's not right which one would you rather be in when you stood if jesus is the judge which one would you rather he, he said the public one went away just okay so he said now he's not advocating just like when he said you tithe mint and anise and cumin and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law love and justice and mercy he's not saying that you shouldn't tithe is he in fact he says these things you ought to have done 
but not neglected this, but you've strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel. So apparently, when he says you strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel, he's saying that this is little in comparison to this. And so being exact and accurate is fine. But Jesus said there were weightier matters of the law. And in comparison with love and mercy and kindness and unselfishness and those qualities that affect our relationship to one another, the qualities that affect our relationship with God, those heart issues, that these other points, although they're, they're there and they're important, that uh, it's a gnat compared to a camel when you, when, you, when you look at them in a comparison standpoint. The other is weightier. Well, the audience determine Jesus' discourse, and his audience is very legalistic Jews who thought of salvation in terms of their being exactly right. And by the way, now, we want to make our point clear. Is there anything wrong? Is, is Jesus in any way hinting that people should not try to be as right as they know how to be? It's not. The, in other words, when the publican and the, the Pharisee could have gone, he didn't have to brag. Was there anything wrong with him tithing and doing all these good things? No, that's great. But when, he, when a guy goes to bragging about it, you begin to wonder about his motives for doing it in the first place. Uh, remember when Jesus talked about giving, and he said, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Don't be ostentatious like they are. Uh, when he talked about prayer, he says, go into your inner chamber. Obviously, they like to get out any, was there anything wrong with the public prayer? Paul did it. And he, remember when Paul was on ship and he was wrecked and you had even pagans there. And, and before all those pagans and everybody, Paul gave thanks openly to God for the bread and, and prayed and then encouraged them to, to go ahead and eat. But if you're doing it because you want other people to think you're religious or something like that, then it's wrong. So their attitude of Thinking in terms of salvation, thinking of salvation in terms of legal rightness, and putting no emphasis on the heart issues, is what he's condemning here. And on the other hand, without condoning any wrong on the part of the the Samaritan or the publican, he is letting us know that these heart issues are are more important. If you ever, how many times through the years, you know, have you maybe heard? somebody refer to somebody that you thought was wrong on some particular point and you know well then you acknowledge that yeah they're a good person and they're spiritual etc but they're wrong here you know so they uh, that those kind of statements that we've made uh, seem to me are a little bit different than what Jesus is saying right here anything else uh, he goes look at the statements here in verse 20 Blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Was it uh, not going to be any rich people in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think he's saying there? Matthew's a little different. Matthew, the beatitude. This looks like the beatitude. Yeah, but we're, let's, right, Matthew, but see, you get into a thing there is, um, is that exactly the same discourse? Like Matthew is Sermon on the Mount. Here he's on a level place. Look at verse 17. He went with them, stood on a level place, large crowd. Uh, Matthew, we've got we're on a mountain. Uh, 
the question is, is this exactly the same discourse, the same material? Jesus traveled and taught, and and how many different places and ways he taught all this material, you know, we can only guess. But, uh, it, right, there's no question, there's strong similarities all, all the way through there. But he says, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew makes a statement about being poor in spirit. He says, blessed are you who hunger now. Uh, Matthew says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Either one of them. Uh, blessed are you who weep now. Uh, Matthew, blessed are they that mourn. Kind of worries me because I'm reading down there in verse 24. It says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. I don't... I don't know if I like that too much because, I mean, I'm pretty well fed, you know. It's like, what are you well, saying? well, let's, before we look at that and the interpretation, were there rich people here that, was, um, that were faithful to God? Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Rich man. He was a Pharisee. What about, uh, this is during the time of even the law of Moses. What about Abraham? He was a wealthy man. Wealthy. Was it Theophilus also especially wealthy? He was, we know he was, the indication is he was very prominent when he says the most excellent. Uh, uh, what about Philemon? Had servants, owned a house that was big enough for the church to meet in. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, tell those that are rich not to be high-minded or put their trust in riches, but to be willing to share with others. And you know, obviously they had rich people in the, in the church. The rich fool, was he condemned because of his riches or because of his attitude? Okay, uh, okay here, uh, in other words, we could go to passages all over in the Old and New to show that there were definitely uh, wealthy people. Uh, Lydia was, uh, seemed to have been a pretty well-to-do lady in a cellar of purple. Only the rich people uh, could afford that type of thing. So uh, the... So what would he be saying here? Uh, blessed are you who are poor. Remember another time he said that uh, it's easier for, uh, or more difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a, a needle. But yet we know we have rich people in there. And he says, blessed are you poor, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Wasn't, I mean, it still is today, but wasn't there a great, significant I mean the way people attained riches a lot of times uh, you know involved I guess a lot of greed and I guess improper attitudes of heart okay you can uh, attain riches by being uh, greedy uh, lusting uh, being dishonest and obviously all through the centuries people have become rich you know in doing those type of things you can also achieve uh, people have inherited wealth or are simply earned it in perfectly honorable ways haven't they and, and without even lusting or anything of that nature and so obviously that uh, that there can be but as a general rule you you know you you tend to think there is a difference there and he made the statement that there was a difficulty there harder for a rich man uh, in what what's why do you think that more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven Okay. 
put their trust in the possessions themselves. What about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and, and he told him to go sell his possessions and, and he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions that uh, the more you have to give up, maybe the more, more difficult it is. Obviously there, there is, uh, he looks at the poor people and uh, the indication is it was going to be easier for them. And, and by the way, there's, uh, I give you Lamsa's statement on it. Lamsa is a Syrian scholar who does a real good job with the customs of that day. And he points out that Israel was a conquered country. They were a totally conquered country by Rome. Now, when you are a conquered country, most of your people are not wealthy. Which ones are going to be wealthy for the most part? I mean, the conquerors, but then of the people that have been conquered, as a general rule, which ones are going to have the wealth? The traitors. Those that, those that have sold out to the conquerors, those that have been willing to compromise on their beliefs and whatnot. And so that the devout Jew who believed very strongly in God and Israel uh, is not going to compromise. Remember Zacchaeus? When he repented, he said, half my possessions I'll give to the poor. And he was a tax collector. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. So that in this day, it's probably pretty hard in a conquered nation for somebody to arise to prominence and wealth without fraternizing quite a bit with the, the enemy force and his pagan views. And keep in mind, with Rome came all the Roman pagan views the emperor and his idea of his being deity, uh, the worship of the emperor, that you had to swallow a lot of things that you would believe would be wrong as a Jew. I don't know how, personally, that a really devout Jew would become very wealthy. In that, It, it seems to me that he had it'd been a hard time with Rome having conquered there. So that anyway, from Lamb's view, that is the, the big thing so far as what's here, that you it would be very difficult for a devout Jew to become wealthy. And the, the more devout you were, uh, the probably the worse off you were going to have it. You weren't going to get any high positions handed out by Rome. So blessed are you who hunger now, you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. And so there are people that obviously, because of their devoutness, are in this particular condition. And then they also are going to reap, reap other things. Uh, blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. What do you get out of that? That's to do with something you did right because you believed in Jesus. Okay. In other words, just, hey, it's no big deal. This person might, you, can, you can be disliked for some right reasons, can't you? But uh, that... The word blessed, blessed, of course, is a Latin word that means happy. By the way, what do you get out of the biblical use of the term happy? Happy are you when you're hungry? Happy are you when you weep now? Happy are you when men hate you, etc.? What is the biblical use of the word happy? Blessed, blessed. That's your inner Okay. Obviously, it has something to do with the inward person, right? Because you're, you're not in a laughing mood when you're in any of these conditions. 
And so it, the true happiness, satisfaction, maybe. Okay, satisfaction uh, contentment, peace, right. peace with God, that this is what the Bible is calling, calling happiness. Uh, we sometimes maybe confuse pleasure with, with happiness. Uh, blessed are you in your So anytime you stand up for what's right and that happens, he says, be happy on the inside. In fact, he goes ahead and says, rejoice, leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated, treated the prophets. Well, would you get out of that? That uh, when you study the Bible or and you're, you're following the Lord, that you're going to stand up for those principles no matter what or what anybody else thinks about it. What are you, what are you talking about in verse 27 when he says... Uh, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. Takes away your cloak. Do not stop. Give him your tonic. And give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Well, what about that? What's he saying? love your enemies in the sense of um, desiring what's best for them. Agape your enemies. Do what's best for them, whether you feel like it or not, whether they deserve it or not. Okay, if, you're, if you read it in the Greek, it's the word agape. Uh, we, miss you. we have a word love that has almost become meaningless, but the word agape means to desire what is best for the other person, whether or not you like them. Uh, you don't like uh, the word the word that we use like would be like phileo in the Greek, and it cannot be commanded. But uh, that uh, you can desire what is best for the other person. You can cause yourself to do what's right, even though you don't want to. And if somebody is mistreating you or done wrong, you can cause yourself to be civil around them and treat them in the right way, even though you, your feelings have, have, have been hurt about whatever the problem involved. Uh, well, what about this? How come that uh, uh, we don't make much of a big deal on that? It's hard to do. Love your enemies. It's uh, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Um, we water it down. So you can really, we try to reason it away, I think. You know, I think one thing that... We, know, we don't even that, practice it within the church, do we? we I mean, we, we make enemies within the church, and somebody does some little thing, and we fuss and fight. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when, it, when someone does something wrong, you know, it's impossible to have right feelings toward you. You don't feel right. But I can... I think if you think of it in terms of doing what's best for them, what's best for them is that they repent. And so... It's not like you're asking God to just bless them and and uh, make them happy in their wrongdoing, let them be happy in their wrongdoing and all, but you're asking that the Lord would, you know, that, that they would have opportunity to, re to repent and do the right way. And so that, to me, that's easier to do. It is for me to pray. Like I've been, obviously, I guess all of us have been wronged in times past, and I can honestly say that, you know, I hope the person repents. Right, what about your feelings? Like when you meet these people uh, in church or out or anything like that, and he says, bless those who curse with you, pray for those. In other words, 
I don't see any room there for sticking your nose up in the air or being hateful towards anybody just because that you... Well, the whole... And again, I'm not throwing off... But it's a whole lot easier to keep the, the piano out than it is to practice this, isn't it? A whole lot easier. By the way, I'm not even interested in getting into a discussion on the piano or I'm not saying that it should be there. Uh, that, that, um, that's not even what I'm saying. I'm not even interested in that in our discussion. I'm just saying that it's always struck me as interesting that people that felt so strong on some of these legal points uh, within, our, within certain fellowships, whatever the fellowship may be, uh, I've met some uh, ladies in the, uh, in, in the area here of a holiness background that, uh, you know, had their, the, the holiness generally have their long hair and they tie their hair and they don't wear any makeup, don't wear any jewelry around here and you just you can generally tell you know there's that group just being around and all that's fine but i'm saying obviously that that's for religious reasons and yet some of the ugliest personalities that i've met have been people of that i mean ugliest quick-tempered individuals i've met have been people here here she is with her hair all done up and no makeup and no rings and a and a long dress down to her ankles and the whole bit and I'm an ugly in personality, just just downright ugly and hateful and, and quick-tempered. Uh, and that takes place within that uh, group. And I'm saying that, uh, that uh, just as that stands out, I think within our thing, when you have somebody saying to the religious world that we can be one, if we go back and we do things right, you know, and let's study and let's try to do this thing right and get it together and, and all like that, but to make that kind of appeal... And then at any time to have an ugly, nasty disposition or an ugly personality, um, it just, to me, takes away from all the other. It, it, uh, because Jesus really didn't say a whole lot about some of the things that we argue a lot about, that he did say a whole lot about this, though. And you seem to have that in every group, don't you? It yeah. seems to be... Any group. Yeah. It doesn't and, and matter. You have good uh, people that are sincere and really trying uh -huh. to do what's right. But within any group, you'll have people that, uh, that uh, where it shows, on, uh, you can go into a group, you know, everybody's just real nice, they're glad you're there, and they shake your hands and everything like that. When you really begin to see what people are made of, I mean, every, when you're new and you go anywhere, they, they shake your hands and they're nice and they smile. When you really begin to see what they're really made of spiritually, and when you and you begin to see yourself, what you're made of spiritually too. When you differ with them on time. Okay. When you have a difference, uh, I, I'm I'm of the conclusion that for a long time you never know anybody until you've had a difference with them. Anybody can be nice as long as you're doing everything the way they want you to do. Um, look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? That's where we take all our credit. You know, I, it's easy to love the person who thinks you're great. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Love, verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them, etc. In short, uh, it is easy to be civil and nice and good and pleasant to people that are that way to you, it is very difficult. Uh, it, in fact, if you just followed your feelings 
I don't think you would obey what Jesus is saying here. But what does that mean? I mean, it's like if, if there's somebody that, some neighbor that you have or whatever, and they, they purposely take advantage of you and stuff like that all the time, or by some, you know, they, they use up your yard for something, or they, they trample all over your grass or whatever, you know, there's something that they do that irritates you, do you... You know, or something serious that you would have to take legal action or whatever. To, well, you could. What do you do? You can do all of that. Well, there's passages, you know, to deal with that. But I'm saying that that even when you're having a difference, you don't have to result to name calling, putting the other, uh, you know, and things of that nature. That that would still be wrong. You know, that uh, we can have a difference and still uh, handle it in in a right way. Rebuke and your brother. The uh, like, for example, when you go into the uh, situation, I, I don't believe there's any exception hardly to this. Walk into any church you want to, uh, a Baptist church, a Church of Christ, a Seventh-day Adventist, and I've been in all of them, and if they're having a discussion and they're, and they're dealing with some particular doctrine that they believe in all, and in as nice a way as you want to, you can express some difference with that doctrine, and there will be a silence that comes over and then people will make a few comments. And then if you just, in a nice way, there will be some that will get mad. Um, I, had, I was in a church at where my mom goes, and the, and the preacher became so infuriated that he got up and walked out of the building. Well, I mean, walked in the back, walked out of the auditorium. And I honestly was making an effort to say it is nice. Now, I knew that it wasn't, but they were talking and they got off on a particular denomination, you know, in this thing that, and so I just simply said that, that we was in Philippians, I said, Paul was really not talking about any denominations here. He's talking about a way of life. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? And so they got on, and, and then a few words, and they said, there was silence, and they said, do you mean that you believe that there are saved people in the denominations? And I said, yes. I believe there's... I believe that we're a denomination too, and I believe that yes, there are saved people in the denominations. That's why I said it. And he, he, in order to control himself, he had to get up and leave the building. Well, let's say I was wrong. Maybe everybody out there is lost except us. You know, maybe yeah, right. Maybe 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 we're the true and blue and 100% right on everything, and everybody else is lost. Listen, for the sake of argument, I'm still saying that if you're practicing what this is. You don't get mad and lash out and become ugly or, or refuse to speak to somebody or something like that because of that. And we all know this is a case so much that over the years you're going to sit in Bible classes and you'll reach and, and you'll even there will be things and you would like to say something, but rather than have somebody get mad or, or hurt or something like that, you just wind up not saying it. I'm saying that... But that's not what Jesus did. He <laughs> right, did. right. Now, Mark, I'm getting him calmed down. Quit, quit uh, reminding him of these things. But that's the thing about... I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons that... When you look at Jesus, I mean, he... Right. He had the chance to avoid the confrontation. Right. And he did him all the time. But the point is that he, he was teaching on attitude here. And I'm saying that... Maybe, let's say that uh, the person, if I get mad because the person has, has said something, and let's say I'm in the right on this point, he and this, me and this guy are having a difference, but I get mad because he, he just can't see it my way. 
I believe if I understand what he's saying there that that my loss of temper and treating the man in a wrong way is a worse thing than being wrong on that point. That uh, you're there's a what by the way what is the difference between heart issues and intellect issues? You want to, there's some differences there between intellect reason. issue and heart issues. You can reason with intellect issues, but with heart issues, you well, pretty much throw reasoning out of it. Okay, but I mean from a standpoint, that's right. Now, from a standpoint of the importance to God, what is a difference between heart issue and intellect issue? Well, Why is the heart thing... Pardon? That and a camel, though, too. Right, there's a... Right, the obviously he said that heart issue is is more important, and what is the what is the difference well, between you get your heart right? The intellect, as you as you as you understand better, you're going to it's going to take care of the 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 little minor points. You're going to fix that as soon as you realize that you're doing something wrong. Okay, can is there any human being, no matter what their intellect or what their heart, but that they can be wrong on any point? Can't we all be wrong on some point? What does it take to be right on points? Understand. Okay, what does it take to understand things? I mean, I, I know that now hard issues, honesty, but I'm saying, what do you have to have to understand any point from a legal standpoint? All the facts. All the facts. All, all the facts. And so it, you can be very sincere. You can be very patient, very unselfish. You can love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You can love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't have all the point, facts on a particular issue, or if you've got a misunderstanding of some of those facts, an honest misunderstanding, then you will have a wrong understanding of this legal issue, right? But let's look at the heart thing. What does it take to be wrong on heart issues? Bad character. Okay, it's an act, we're dealing with the actual. Remember what uh, Paul said, even of the Gentile who didn't have the law, that said even of their own conscience that they did, they knew the law. In other words, that that uh, this business of of the attitude is one that involves our will and our and our feelings toward others. That's why I said, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, this is the, fulfills the law and the prophets. The the attitude thing is really you. Uh, what does it take to be legally right on, on everything in the world? The facts. And and, and if, you, if you've been fortunate enough to come in more contact with more facts than somebody else, and by the way, do we all have an equal mind? Are we all equally good readers? Are we all equally adept at sitting down? Can we all sit down and, and read this material in the, in the same time with the same comprehension? And can we all sit down and read the various research books and things like that? Uh, I remember listening to John Clayton uh, lecture when we went up to a seminar in South Bend. And I don't know, have any of you had any contact with John Clayton? Mark has. Uh, most people are just fascinated with the amount of reading this man has done. You see, he works full-time job, but he's just uh, read book after book after book. You know, just anything you bring up, he's aware of a book on that thing. And so anyway, he just simply has the type of mind that he can pick up a book and just go through it. I mean, what would be maybe a day's chore for some people is a, is a few hours chore for John. 
that he goes through it. Well, then he gleams that and, and gets the, the information out. Well, is it fair to expect somebody who doesn't have that kind of mind to be aware of as many facts as John is or anything? I don't... Uh, we're, we're not all equal. Uh, anybody that's ever taught school knows that we're, we're not all equal in our grasp of, of facts and things of, uh, things of this nature. So you can be legally right just by having a lot of information and having a good mind and, and having a, a fortunate environment that's had contact with it, but yet you can be tremendously wrong in your heart while you're legally right. But being heart right is a decision you make. I mean, that's something that no matter how low down on the totem pole you are, as long as you're normal enough to be accountable, you can be heart right if you want to. And no matter how... And by the way, is being heart right any easier for the genius than it is the guy with, an, with it is a, we'll say, below normal IQ? It's not, is it? it, it, it that's always interested me, that these principles here... The genius may understand it quicker, and he may read more commentaries on it, and, and maybe he can read it in, in, in fluently in Greek and, and everything like that. But when it gets down to, look at what he says at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he talks about the, the really successful persons, one does what he says, uh, is it any easier for a genius to practice the teaching of Jesus than an average person? In other words, spiritually, are we all equal? We don't, there's no... Uh, uh, being smarter than somebody, being a quicker reader, gives you no advantage when it comes to obeying the command, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, overcome evil with good, be unselfish, uh, you have no advantage at all. That's that's interesting that we are we're spiritually equal, uh, that uh, conscience-wise we're equal. And here is where he puts all of the emphasis. And by the way, I don't want to take any emphasis away from information. I, I study all the time. I believe we have to study. But I'm just saying that uh, somebody said earlier that if he was going to sum up this chapter, you'd say the emphasis was on the intent of heart. And uh, we've made the observation that all of these issues are heart issues that he exalts so much all the way through here. And the interesting thing is, all of these statements come in a framework where the people are not emphasizing heart issues, but they're emphasizing legal issues. Uh, how do you, according to this, now let's ask another question. How do you go, who is a Christian anyway? How do you know who, who is a true Christian? Everybody, have, there's all these arguments about who's been born again and, and all the legal propensities of what's involved in being born again and, and names and doctrines, etc. Uh, as I walk in the world, people say if we don't have the sign up, the right people will never find us, you know. They won't know we're there. Uh, how do you identify true Christians? Okay, what you, by fruits, uh, okay, look at that statement in 45, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. 
The good man brings good things out of stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things. Uh, evil is stored in his heart. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. I was listening the other day on the news. Anybody, everybody familiar with Marge Schott? I believe her name. Uh, she's the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. And it come out about, she made a lot of real derogatory statements about blacks. I mean, it was really derogatory and very insensitive, and it all come out and everything. And so, anyway, the way she handled that, finally, you know, she's been asked to resign and all. She said, it came from my mouth, but not my heart. I said, I don't really, that, that's what she said. And I listened to that. It came from my mouth, but not my heart. And so when I'm using, when I'm calling them niggers and I'm making fun of them and I'm throwing jokes out there, uh, it's, uh, they'll be glad to know that <laughs> it's coming out of my mouth, but it's not in my heart, you know. Well, she'd been better off uh, to just say, I, I, you know, I made a foolish, I was wrong, period. Uh, but but she, she, by the time she got through it, that's what it was. It came from her mouth, but not, not her heart. Uh, by the way, you can repent of heart mistakes, can't you? Because we're all lost if you can't. Uh, okay, then how are we going to recognize, uh, uh, Mark, who are the Christians in Kingston? How do you know when a person's been born again and is a Christian? Who are the Christians there? Darren? Okay, and, and he even says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, do not do what I say? In other words, according to that, is it ridiculous to say he's Lord when you're not doing what he says? Yes. Okay. Uh, then <clears throat> the, the, the Christian then is somebody that's bearing the fruits of Christ. Is, uh, in fact, when we get right down to this, the word Christian itself means the emulation of Christ, doesn't it? It's kind of funny because the groups have got themselves divided up on doctrines when the word Christian itself means uh, the, the emulation of, of, <coughs> of Jesus. Uh, uh, no wonder the world is confused as to what Christianity is because we, uh, I mean, we're a good example we will withdraw fellowship from a moral, spiritual, honest, godly, loving person who differs on some key doctrine and will embrace in fellowship some stingy, dishonest, worldly, ungodly, lukewarm individual who agrees with us on these particular points. And we say he's faithful brother you know, or faithful sister. And, and then over here, somebody who legally, let's say for the sake of argument, they're legally wrong. But it's obvious from being around them that they love God. I mean, it just comes out in their, in their vocabulary and in their life and everything like that, that they, they love God. And I'm saying we use a criteria of, of fruit inspection that's a little different than the, 
the one that uh, Jesus had here. One of the first places I've used, I don't remember if he was talking about that in church, the first place, time, this ever really hit me, and you began, I began to see what a real Christian was. I joined the Marine Corps, and of course the, the Marine Corps is not known for its spiritual depth. But anyway, in, in boot camp in Paris Island, I knew I wouldn't have opportunities to go to church and all, and so I carried some unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine and all with me, the, the grape juice, and I'd already made up my mind I would partake of the Lord's Supper on the on the first of the week. And of course, they gave us a chance to go to the the chapel and everything like that on the uh, on Sunday. But anyway, that as I met the guys, and, and there's all the cussing, there's all the filthy stories, and and there's all you know the 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 fights and the near fights and everything in that in that whole environment. But there was one guy down here that uh, that he didn't cuss. He didn't tell the dirty stories. He didn't laugh at the dirty stories. And he, he had a completely different demeanor. And I just felt attracted to that person. So he, he noticed that I partook of the Lord's Supper. I noticed he, he would, the way he ended his day was reading in the Bible. And so we obviously gravitated. The man was from the Greek Orthodox Church. You know, and so we became close friends in that environment, uh, and uh, we partook of the Lord's Supper together. We started, we went to chapel together. We just became very good friends, and I realized that hey, this guy is—he's emulating Christ. He loves the Lord. Well, after I got out, after we finished boot camp, I'm having a conversation with another guy there that we went all the way through boot camp together. And, and now we're finished and we're, you know, we're out on our own and we get to talking and telling one another where we're from and everything like that. And uh, it comes out that, uh, uh, you know, when I mentioned that I'd went to Freed Hardeman College and then right away he said, Freed Hardeman College, you must be a member of the Church of Christ. And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. That's my background too. I would have never guessed it, you know, that the man all the way through he didn't go to the chapel. He didn't worship. He used the same filthy language that the others, the same attitude and all. But he identified me as a Christian because I said I went to Freed Hardman College and that rung a bell uh, in him uh, on that. And it just helped me to appreciate that, uh, that man, maybe we need to examine, you know, the criteria very carefully as to what a real, what a, what a Christian is. And what Jesus is saying, by the way, caused him a lot of trouble here. Why did it? We're going to end on this. Why this very sermon that we just read and the things that he's doing constantly causes Jesus problems and will eventually send him to his death. Why? Who hates him so much? Who wants to kill him? Who has a hard time getting along with him? He condemned them. He was condemning the, the leaders because they obviously didn't fit what he was talking about. The religious leaders. Uh, and by the way, not all the Pharisees, there were some of the Pharisees converted, weren't they? But the, uh, that it's interesting, you've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Herodians and the Essenes, and he doesn't join any of those groups. Uh, he devoutly pursues a course through the law of Moses, stands up for that that thing. Uh, I believe the lesson to all of us that we ought to get our Christianity out of the Bible and, and not just by looking at what is 
practiced or, or, or advocated. But uh, true Christianity is an emulation of, of the life of Christ. And by the way, how is, is any legal point going to be put down when you have that view of a Christian? Why? Is any legal point going to suffer if you emphasize heart issues? And if not, why not? If you get the heart right, then you're going to want to do what's okay. You're going to want to do what's right. A person whose heart is right is always going to want to be as legally right as they know how, right? So if you, uh, when uh, they took Apollos aside and showed him where he was wrong on some point, he didn't seem to have any problem with that, did he? That uh, they just uh, he he was he was doing a lot of right things. There was something here that he wasn't quite right on. They took him aside. He didn't have any problems with, with that. Uh, if the heart is right, uh, what about Paul? Was his heart right? He was. His heart was right. His conscience right. So he didn't have any problem. Uh, well, he just simply needed to see it and see where he was, uh, see where he was wrong and all. But if the heart is right. A person will always be as right as he knows how. What about a person who's legally right on a lot of things, but his heart is not right? You think he'll ever wind up right on the things he's wrong? No, that's all he has. Not until he gets his heart right. Uh, you don't. Uh, humble people repent, don't they? I mean, that uh, repenting is not something that proud people do very easily. I think there's a lot of people that need a humbling experience. Uh. Need to come to the realization that they're wrong. Yeah, I think one of the, some of the best things that happened to me through the years is finding out that I was wrong on some things because some things that I had been very dogmatic on, and then found out that I was wrong, and that's a humbling experience. And and I knew I was sincere, and so and yet I was just plain wrong, and that is very, very you know difficult to to accept on it. But then it helps you to appreciate the fact that other people can be very sincere and at the same time legally wrong on some point. Anybody want to make any other comments or observations before we conclude? Well, I want to ask go back to the question, do you do you confront the modern day Pharisees? Under what situation should you or should you not? I, mean, I do. I think that uh, the uh, one thing I, I do believe that, uh, that I like Jesus said I didn't teach you all things. You were not yet able to bear it. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Jesus taught them as they were able to hear him, Mark 4.33. I think if you're in a situation where somebody is not ready for a particular piece of information, then it's tactful to make the preparation you know, before it. But when you're dealing, I think the people that Jesus was the way you're talking about was when he was with religious people who were dogmatically setting themselves up as being right and everything like that, and yet they were not, and he really hit it head on. And I think that uh, uh, when you're in that kind of an environment, uh, then I think, uh, sort of like the book that Hugh gave me the other night, Behold the Pattern, uh, you know, a fellow in the church, that, uh, that uh, I think that kind of thing needs to be hit head on. I think one of the conclusions that Rubel Shelley and some of those in Nashville came to some years back was that uh, that the only way out of it was to hit it head on in, in those areas. And the Pharisees, they needed to be shown that they were wrong, and I don't think in a public way Jesus could have done that any other way than making them angry. Right. I, have done it without making them angry. I don't either. <clears throat> I don't think that uh, uh, Barbara gets disturbed sometimes because, you know, you 
of course, it's embarrassing to her to have everybody dislike you or her or whatever it is, you know, not for her, but for, for her, it's embarrassing for her if they get disturbed at me. But uh, like, when, like when the preacher walked out or something like that. But I really don't. Uh, I, we've, uh, on the thing you mentioned, uh, Chuck, I think that these people that have these real strong view that everybody that differs with me on any point is going to hell. And that, uh, you know, they're just out of it on that. And that salvation is tied up in doing these legal points right and, and things of that nature. I don't believe there's any way you can counteract it except somebody getting, they get mad in the process. I believe you can be just as calm and loving and kind. I think they still will because they, they, that so much is wrapped up in that. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, and, and it's interesting. Uh, no, again, no need for name or anything like that, but an experience. Jack and Louise and Barbara and I, we've had an experience uh, over together over at church. Here's a man that uh, uh, would teach the Bible class every Sunday, stand up and send every denominational person into hell, uh, talk about their ignorance. He couldn't understand why anybody couldn't see this become extremely mad when I would take issue with him on those points. And yet the man could be running around on his wife, committing adultery for a period of time, all the time he's teaching a class and partaking the Lord's Supper, and have a, an ugly attitude out in the community, uh, not be spiritual, uh, to the best of my knowledge, never led a person to Christ, and yet still have those strong feelings on those areas. And there was no way, every time the subject come up, he couldn't do it with that anger. He couldn't even stand to talk about uh, uh, those particular matters. And the only thing I could see was that the life was so unspiritual that his salvation in his mind was being derived out of being legally right on these points. And if you pull that out from under him and said that this is not what makes you right with God, his whole world caved in. He wasn't even uh, right on all those points. Oh, yeah, but at least he thought he was. So. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, yeah. honestly, I'm saying the adult, if that's right. out doing that, he's really blind. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying that, you see, here's the thing. Here's the here's the plan, Mark. You don't. You obviously don't understand it. No, I understand. Here, here it is. You can be morally wrong, and the grace of God will take care as long as you confess that stuff. But, man, you cannot be legally wrong on some point because there's just no grace for that kind of stuff. So go out here and commit adultery or gossip or be lukewarm or worldly and if you'll confess that to God, God will, you know, he'll He'll, he'll forgive you and he'll be patient with you waiting on you to confess that kind of thing too. But, um, but if you're legally wrong on some point over here, there's just no room for you in the end. <laughs> That's it. Nothing, nothing there at all. But I mean that I think it's something for us to think about because our background is a, very similar to the, the Pharisees. Uh, the, the separated ones, by the way, who were, were trying so hard to do everything exactly right, and yet they are the group that Jesus had such tremendous conflict all the time. And nobody was trying any harder to do everything exactly right than the, than the Pharisees. I'm probably going to embarrass myself more, but if this guy, if he does honestly repent, 
I mean, is there room for forgiveness from God for him? You know, I mean, sure. he may be wrong doing these things, you know, but he does ask for forgiveness. But then, you know, I guess what is the distinction? If he goes back and does it again and thinks, well, I was wrong, so I'll go and repent. And he honestly repents or whatever, and he tries not to do, you know, I guess, I don't, I mean... Uh, another one, same type of legality. Another man comes to me that I was, Barbara and I was studying with a couple where they had been divorced and uh, adultery was involved and they were having an adulterous relationship. It led to a divorce. Each of their mates got married and they got married and they each had children. Okay. And so the question is, can they repent or anything like that? Or what do they do? So anyway, we were studying and they were trying to think through this and they come to service and one of the men uh, came to me, and he says that if you baptize that couple, that I'll leave the church, and over half is, is going with me. Uh, that, uh, that, that was his comment. That very man at the time was having adulterous-type relationships, making passes at... At people. But, you see, he was still married to that same woman. He may have been committing adultery here and here, and he may have been making passes at all kinds of ladies here, but he still was, was at least married to this woman, and, and he, was, he, was, he was confessing this other. You know, uh, some people have a weakness. He had a weakness for ladies. So he kept confessing that. Well, see, this all come out afterwards, but I'm saying at a time when he's this way, that was the statement he made. See, you get to this legal point. The church had staked out a doctrine on this, that uh, uh, this person, they were, they were the guilty party. And by the Church of Christ doctrine in that area on that, the guilty party uh, could never remarry. They had to be celibate. Even though the, the other party could marry and have children, fine. But you, the only hope for you is to be celibate. And so that, that is not a spelled out, that was interpretation, but I'm saying so strong on that interpretation that they would state that we'll split the church if you baptize. No room for differing with my doctrine or my interpretation of it or anything like that, but yet still be the other way. Now, I find that even if I differ with this person, I could still be more understanding if I looked and saw a godly life. My problem is from an ungodly life, that kind of, of what they believed was strictness over an interpretation on some point. And I'm saying that what you see in all those issues is a, a church, a body of people staking out certain doctrines 